If you turn your Bibles, we're going to begin Hebrews chapter 12 tonight. I did not pick those songs. Those songs were picked by Austin. And I... He must have been checking in with God or something on it, because... Tonight's message, Ready to Run. We're going to take the first 11 verses. And at first glance, there's a couple things here that we, you know, we kind of look on and we're going, "Eh, can we just skip that part? As I was studying this afternoon, quite frankly, I wasn't sure kind of what God was doing because I was pretty sick this afternoon and somehow, miraculously, through worship, I'm feeling fine. So I'll probably crash later, but... Life is a race, and it's a long-distance race. And sometimes you get tired, and sometimes you get tired of the coach yelling at you, and sometimes you don't want to hear, you know, hey, you got to pick up your feet. I, I, I will never forget my first track coach in high school. His name was Leon Herzog. And Leon was about this tall and about that wide from top to bottom. He was one of those guys, he was almost square. He looked like Spongebob, actually. (laughs) He could not run. He could barely walk, as I remember. But he was the type of track coach that could pick out the slightest ridiculous flaw in anything you did. And I remember they couldn't quite figure out what to do with me because I was principally a long-distance runner, but I was a pretty fair sprinter, so I ended up a pole vaulter. But initially, they kind of wanted me to, kind of wanted me to run some of the some of the quicker races. So I I ran the 220, 880, and eventually ran the mile on the track as well. But I remember the, the first couple of weeks of track practice, he kept telling me I was dragging my right foot. And I said, what do you mean I'm dragging my right foot? I just smoked the entire team. I said, if I'm dragging my right foot, then what are they doing? Yell at them. And I couldn't figure out why in the world he was picking on me. And then he pulled me aside one time and he said, I'm picking on you because you're the best we've got. And he said, if I don't pick on you, you won't get better. And if you don't get better, this team won't win. That is a word for you tonight. If we don't get better individually, if we don't do the best that each of us can do individually, it's tough to be victorious as a team. And that's what we are, as we saw on Sunday. We're the body of Christ. We're part of a a very large group of people that are scattered all over the earth. And so we individually need to be ready to run. And I want to encourage you tonight. Sometimes that requires some... Very, very, very difficult things to happen in your life. Whatever sporting endeavor you have ever engaged in, or really many endeavors in life, much the same principle applies. But certainly every sporting endeavor, doesn't matter what sport it is, if you want to get better, you've got to practice. You, you have to get out on the field. You, you've got to get out on the track. And you have to go until it hurts. Because if you just go until you feel good, or you just go until you're kind of done, or you, or you just go until you feel like you've finished, you will never be good at anything, ever. It is the process of pain that makes you great as an athlete, and there is no substitute for it. Talk to any great athlete, you will find a very consistent voice that says, it hurts. It doesn't matter whether you're a ballet dancer, a football player, baseball player, racquetball. I don't care if you sprain your wrist doing air hockey. If you're going to get good, it's going to take pain. If you're going to advance, it's going to take pain. And that really is the essence of tonight's message because it is an endurance race. And so I pray tonight you'll be encouraged and strengthened and built up, and that we'll enjoy this time in this passage of Scripture that some like to skip because there's a couple of tough verses in it, but I think realistically they're actually very wonderful verses. And they're very encouraging verses if you look at them from the proper perspective. 
Because God wants us to get better. God has every desire and design for your life to, to bring him glory in some new, fresh, exciting, wonderful way. And so I pray that the Lord would speak to us. Would you join me and let's offer up this passage for the Holy Spirit to, to move in this place tonight. Lord, we do just simply come and, and invite you, God, to, to be the interpreter of these notes. And, Father, whatever's in them that isn't of you, erase it. And, Father, we pray that you'd instruct us by the power of your Holy Spirit and how we ought to run. Lord, that we be ready to run. Lord, some of us aren't ready. And it has nothing to do with our physical health. It has everything to do with our spiritual health, our, our mental acuity to, in tune with the things that you'd want us to do. And so, God, help us to receive from heaven tonight as we study your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 here in Hebrews 12, and therefore, and so, again, when you see therefore, remember it always points you backwards. That by faith, those... Old Testament saints, that's so great a cloud of witnesses that is coming. Because they're in heaven now, amen? Along with the angels, along with everybody who's passed away on this earth, that's gone on to be with the Lord. They live their lives by faith. They've been rewarded for it. And therefore, we also, us, you and me. Now, look at the context. The context is chapter 11. Remember what was said there. Here's these great lives of faith distributed to us. The examples given, including Jesus himself. You have all of the the patriarchs mentioned there. You have these great people of faith. You have men. You have women. You have people who have lived their lives for Jesus Christ, who have gone on before you. Therefore, we also, you, me, us, the church, right here, right now, we also. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Have you ever thought uh, about what it's like to be in the heavenlies at this point in time and, and to see what's going on on this earth? I've often thought, and I, and I really still hold the basic view, that I'm not sure that the view from heaven makes it all the way to earth anymore. Because I think people in heaven would be so filled with hurt for us I, I think they're probably not able to see that part. But we're sure surrounded because there have been a whole lot of people that have gone on before us. And, and there have been people that have walked in your shoes and they've walked in my shoes. Sometimes we're tempted to believe we're the only ones that have ever gone through our life. Amen? You know, you, you invented the first problem that, that is looming large on your horizon. Like you're the, the first one to ever go through that situation. And it's so ridiculously untrue. You know, as I share with people, even my own testimony, my own story, I find out that a vast majority of people have been through similar circumstances in life. I have yet to really meet anybody that I would say is unscathed by life. I've met some that are a little less dinged up than I am, but I don't think I've met anybody that doesn't have a few bumps and bruises. And therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You see the picture here? In the context of the Old Testament saints, in the context of people who have gone before you, in the context of us living lives of faith, in the context of you and I having to now run this race ourselves, we all go the same way. Nobody gets exempted. You know, when you give your life to Jesus, there all of a sudden isn't a mini rapture. You know, you don't get to go home immediately to be with the Lord. Some people are sooner than others, but all of us have a race to run. There's a reason for it. And the whole time that you're in that race, you're, you're bringing glory to the Lord. I shared with you some of my track and cross-country stories, but I, I can remember the first invitational track meet that I ran in San Diego. Back, back in those days, it was the Gulf General Atomic Arena. It's the same arena that I played basketball in, but it used to be the home of the San Diego Invitational. And I remember the first time that I went to the San Diego Invitational because it was an invitational. It was from teams from all over the nation. The very best, the most elite high school athletes in the nation ran in that event. 
And at the time, Steve Mendoza was the world's record holder in the mile, and he was in that meet, and I ran in that race with him. I got killed. <laughs> but I remember walking onto the track and looking up in the stands, and the place was pretty much full, about 9,500 people inside of that arena at that time. I remember looking up there and just everybody looking down on, and, and at that time, that was a premier event. It was basically one of the ones that everybody came to see because there was a very good chance that the world record might be broken at that event. And I remember we lined up on the starting line, and that gun went off, and all of a sudden I realized exactly how outclassed I was in this particular group of individuals. And you sit there and you realize, man, i got some more training to do. These guys are that much better than I am. I'm really good in our little league. I'm real good. But against these guys, there are some people that have run this race a lot faster and a lot more often than I have. They went on to the Olympics. But the point is this. You don't get there overnight. It, I guarantee you nobody reaches that level of competition Nobody gets in those types of events without an awful lot of pulled hamstrings and blown out calves and, and falls and scrapes. And I, I mean, the, the start of a cross-country race in a major event can be a sight to behold. A large invitational, there can be two, 300 people at the starting line. And because it's a short race, it's only two and a half to three miles, it's virtually a sprint from start to finish for, for the very best runners. And people take off, and man, people are on the ground, they're in the bushes, they're everywhere. And the only way to avoid that is to be in front. That's what we're shooting for. We want to be in front. We don't want to run from behind. It's not a fun thing to be in the back of the pack with 400 people in front of you going, well, I hope I can catch up. We should all want to win. And so it says, let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Notice how. Looking unto Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith, referring back to the faith that's in chapter 11. Looking unto Jesus, saying, you know what? Man, that's my coach. That's my model. That's my hero. That's the one I'm looking to. You see, in the athletic world, in, in the endeavor of athletics, you don't want to pick someone to model who's worse than you. You, you don't want to go out and say, well, I see you, can, you, you can't quite crawl, but would you like to be my sprint coach? That's why I could never figure out Leon Herzog. Coach Herzog was like, how he got to ever be a coach, I don't know. But I can tell you this. You want to pick someone who's way better than you. Because when you run with people who are way better than you, you will get better. You'll run further, you'll run faster, you'll run harder, and you'll have a better result. You personally grow from being challenged. And so do I. And so the picture here is looking unto Jesus, the author, the originator, and the finisher, the completer. Of your faith, my faith, our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, I can tell you this, as a teenager, someone the age of these young people that just led us in worship, it's a pretty exciting thing to stand on the winner's platform. It doesn't matter whether you're first, second, or third, but to be on the podium at the end of something like that to where you're, you're talking about the elite athletes in your particular region, and you're standing there, and there's just three of you up there going, yes, that's what you shoot for. Nobody setting out to run in any type of a race goes, man, I hope I'm last. I hope I really stink at this. I will be so pleased if at the end of the day, not only am I terrible, but I get hurt doing it. No, you're looking unto Jesus. You want that kind of faith. You want Him to instill that in you. He endured everything to go to the cross to give you the ability to have that kind of faith. So at the end of the day, you can be a winner. 
We're not talking about being a loser here. We're talking about being a winner for Christ Jesus. And that means you've got to get ready to run. The beginning of every track season, the beginning of most sports season, there's usually a two-week thing often, re- often referred to as hell week. Pretty much doesn't matter what sport it is. It's hell week or Gehenna week or vile evil week or whatever. It's some kind of horrible name attached to a week or two weeks prior to the season. Why? Because you've been sitting around doing nothing. And because you've been sitting around doing nothing, your body's out of shape. You haven't been eating right. you got a few extra pounds. Notice what it says here. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. There comes a point in time when we, by faith, have to make the cognizant choice to say, I'm putting that aside so I can run well. Because if I don't put the stuff aside that needs to go, I will never run well. You ever notice you're going to get, I, I love the Olympics. The Olympics is like one of those things for me. It's just like, Team USA, I'm glued to the television. I don't care if it's water ballet. I'm still into it, okay? <laughs> but when I look at that, you, you ever noticed how you don't see Olympic athletes with, you know, a few extra love handles? And you don't see Olympic athletes, especially runners, that are, you know, they're carrying a little extra baggage. They're not running in, in sweats, The new suits they have, you can't even tell they're wearing. If they painted them the wrong color, you'd think that they didn't have anything on. Why? They want no extra weight. None. Not in them, not on their clothes. None. Zero. Zip. I remember my first pair of Antisuka Tigers. They were the shoe. They were the shoe that the Olympians wore. At the time, I think they weighed three and a half pounds. You know, the new shoes are like two and a half ounces. Matter of fact, they're not actually a shoe. They're air that's painted. <laughs> but I remember I got a pair of those, and I, I put those on my feet. And it was like, these ought to be illegal. Because my old shoes, they were like a pound and a half a, a piece. And I put these on, and I think at the time they were about ten ounces, which is still a reasonably light shoe. They were nothing but nylon and a little tiny thin sliver of uh, EVA foam on the bottom. I remember putting those on and starting to run, and it was like, man, I'm probably going to attempt 20 seconds coming off my mile time because I got these shoes on. And, of course, I grew up in the day and time when when track shorts, you know, they had legs on them about one half of an inch long. They were, it's like the old basketball uniforms. Not a pretty sight. But you didn't have to worry about getting entangled in them, okay? Because they were short. They were minimalistic would be a good word. And when you put those on, you did it because you didn't want anything to hold you back, tangle you up. You didn't run in your warm-up suit. We had these funky purple warm-up suits that were made. I think they were made out of old teepees or something. They were so heavy. It's like four pounds of pants and three pounds of jacket. But if you, if you warmed up in them, you were really warm. But you sure wouldn't want to run the race in them. Because they were extra dead weight. Looking unto Jesus. The joy that was set before him. Looking for the prize. He wasn't looking to place. He wasn't looking to be in the top ten. He was looking to win. He went all the way. He trained like no human being will ever train ever again and doesn't have to because he did. Endured the cross, despising the shame. As he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You, you, you see, every great endeavor, and it is no different with your personal walk with Christ, takes a handful of things done consistently. It isn't some giant mental thing that you need to prove to yourself. It's some very simple things that need to be done over and over and over and over again. The same that's true in running a race is also true in your spiritual life. You will never get good if you don't put in the miles, period. 
you won't get good. And the same thing's true for you as a Christian. If you're not in the Word, if you're not in prayer, and you're not in fellowship, and you're not doing it a lot, you will not be effective for the kingdom of God. You won't. You'll get fat and lazy spiritually. You'll be sitting around watching other people blow by you because they have been training. And all of a sudden you'll be going, well, how did I end up here? Because you didn't lay aside every weight. You didn't drop the things you needed to drop. And you weren't ready to run the race. Again, back to my analogy. You go to set any type of a distance race in front of you. doesn't matter what distance it is. Anything over a mile. And you have not done what you need to do to get ready for that race. You're going to pull every muscle in your body. That start gun's going to go off, and you're going to think, wow, I'm just as good as everyone else. And about two strides down the track, and you're like, oh, hamstring blows out, calf goes, ball of your foot ties up in a knot, your ribs begin to ache, your diaphragm hurts, your head is splitting. The same thing is true spiritually. If you have not prepared, if you're not ready to run, the moment you are asked to run... And the gun goes off. There's some area of faith in your life that you are going to be tested in. The race is on. You're going to pull up lame. And it's kind of embarrassing. I have also had that happen. And I'll tell you what. Most athletes, especially track athletes, will run the entire... Their leg will fall off on the way around the track just to finish. Because they don't want the shame of not finishing. But that also takes endurance. That takes fortitude. You see, these things are transferred to us spiritually by faith. First thing that I would ask you to look at is your preparation. Back in the Greek days when this was written, there were still Greek games that were held. Uh, Interestingly enough, they often ran in the nude. And the reason they did that Nothing to hold them back. You you see, that's as light as you can get. You want to get trimmed down in your spiritual life to where there's not a lot of excess baggage that you're carrying with you. And that can be a lot of things, family of God. That can be bitterness. That can be hurt. That can be anger. That can be poor teaching. That can be a lack of a prayer life. It can be a jillion spiritual things that you have not prepared yourself well for, and so consequently you're weighted down by the things that those things would have helped solve. You, you see, as I walk in the Spirit and I don't fulfill the lust of the flesh, I get lighter spiritually. I get less encumbered. All of a sudden I'm walking around like I'm on cloud nine because I don't have anything holding me back. That takes preparation. It takes the proper use of your time and your talent and your treasure. It takes your entertainment life. It takes your leisure time. It takes your job. All those things into account. Because those things can hold you back. And if you're tied to the world, you can't run. It's that simple. The second thing. Oddly enough, you actually have to go to the track. You've got to participate. People think somehow you can hit the finish line well without participating. You read the article. I don't know if you read the article. I think it was the Boston Marathon. It was either last year or the year before. There was a dude that actually came across the finish. I think it was first or second or something like that. And they found out that he actually jumped in the race at like the last two miles or something like that. Like he was hiding in a bush somewhere and he just popped out. It's like... When he got there, of course, he didn't stink. He didn't have any sweat on him at all, you know. He came across and went, And everybody goes, DQ, disqualified. There's a funny thing. They make you wear a, a bib number. He had the bib number of a guy who never checked in. Didn't work out so well for him. Same thing's true for you in your spiritual life. You've got to check in. You're doing that right now. You do that at your home fellowships. You do that in your private devotional time. You do that in your prayer life. 
You do that in your own study of God's word. We do that together on, on our times together here in church. You do that as you worship the Lord. You're getting in the game. And you're doing it right. It's necessary. You need to participate. And the third thing, also another P, is perseverance. You have to keep going, even sometimes when it hurts. You know, life's painful if you haven't figured that out at times. Amen? I think most of us could raise our hands. Yes, my life at times has been painful. There are things I look back on and say, Lord, I don't understand why you let me go through that. But I now see that that was part of the perseverance aspect of my life spiritually. God allows us to be tested. He lets us go through stuff that we wouldn't choose for ourselves. The race that we run is not our own. You don't get to determine where the course is set. And persevering means you stay in your lane. In the shorter distance races on the track, you have to stay in your lane. You even step in the other person's lane. Even if they're in front of you and you don't interfere with them, you are disqualified. You're running a long distance race. You bump somebody. You bump them with an elbow. You don't give them enough room to pass or you pass them incorrectly. You are disqualified. You, you have to persevere. And to persevere is to run the race the way it's intended for you. You don't get to map out the course. I loved our cross-country course at my high school because we were one of very few schools who actually had our own mountain. And so our course happened to go up and over the top of this old mountain that had a gravel quarry on the other side of it. And everyone else hated that stupid mountain because we ran it every day. It was good for us. We knew exactly what to run, how to run it. We knew what not to do. We knew when we should not be going all out, and we knew when we could let it fly. You see, we ran that race. And so when people came to our house, they got a whooping. God has that for you in your own personal life. He's got a race that's marked for you. And in marking that race for you, that race that's set before you, before me, before us, some of it is corporate, we're on the same track, you're in one lane, I'm in another you got to be ready to go. And you got to persevere. you got to stay in your lane. That's why I love, the, I love the Olympic sprinting events. They don't last very long. But it's insane to watch human beings that can run 35 miles an hour. It's crazy. You ever watch Usain Bolt take off out of the blocks? You realize he hits 35 miles an hour in less than two seconds? In less than two seconds, that man is running 35 miles an hour. That's insane. Wouldn't you like to have that spiritually in your life? To where you have persevered so long, you have trained so hard, you've run the race so well, you've done your part. When you're asked to go, it's like, boom, you're out of the blocks, you're gone. Run the race that's set before you, that endurance race that's set before you. Get rid of the weight, shed the stuff that shouldn't be there. You see all these little metaphors... Just just help us understand that God wants us to succeed. I remember one year when I was I was just like I was so close. And I was like, Oh, what do I gotta do? What do I gotta do? What do I gotta do? I just couldn't quite break into that top two or three in every race. I was always like fourth. Every once in a while I'd win one. Sometimes I come in 10th. It's just like there wasn't any consistency. And you know what I found out it was? Is I focused too much on the race itself. And I wasn't looking ahead. I was looking at the terrain right in front of me. And another runner actually picked that out. He says, you ever notice, you, you don't look very far down the, down the track, do you? I said, no, I don't. You got to look ahead. Guess where you got to look? Unto Jesus, spiritually. You can't be staring at your own feet. Staring at your own feet, this is what's going to happen, especially if you're a hurdler. You're going to go one, two, poof. Then you're going to pick yourself up, and you're going to go three, four, poof. You see, you're supposed to have those things timed so that you know exactly when to bring your front leg up and when to kick out. 
But if you're looking at the track, you can't do it. You're actually looking two to three hurdles ahead when you run the hurdles. You see, in doing that, as you and I think about our spiritual walks with the Lord, I need to be looking unto Jesus. Because this world ain't got nothing for you. And if you're staring at the world right in front of you, it's depressing. Amen? It's kind of like if you go on a diet. And I know none of you ever diet. But you go, as you get older, you, you go on a diet. I don't know why it is. But you go on a diet. And you look at the scale. And it's like it's going backwards. Why is it going backwards? And the more you look on what's at your feet, the more it seems like it doesn't work. You got to get out. You got to go do something. If you really want to shed those pounds, you got to go get active. You can't be worried about what didn't happen. You got to go do something about what can happen. Spiritually, we get hung up that way. I get so hung up on the things that happened yesterday, last week, last month, last year, in my previous three lives. Because you know, we all have those, right? As you get older, you talk about life one, life two. Kind of are in life three now. You, you, and all of a sudden you start focusing on that stuff that used to be. And you're just like, oh, I'll never get over this. You've got to be looking at Jesus. I need to be focused on heaven. Why? Notice what it says. For the joy that was set before him. Doesn't that sound crazy? You ever thought about that sentence? For the joy that was set before him. What in the world joy could be in anybody when you think about the cross of Christ? You know what the joy was? You. You. Us. Everyone who's ever named the name of Christ. You talk about joy. Because you realize he knew your name before the foundation of the world. He knew that you would make a choice to choose him. He, he has known all along what the body of Christ would look like for the joy. He, he's, going, he's going to Calvary's cross, in essence, and Jeff's going to go to heaven, and Harry's going to go to heaven, and Robert's going to go to heaven, and Kim's going to go to heaven, and Lee's going to go to heaven, Billy's going to go to heaven. They're going to go to heaven. You talk about joy. That's joy. He made an eternal, eternal commitment to you. And to me. And he says to you with his very last breath, it is finished. They're going to go to heaven. The joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. He scoffed. He despised the shame. He said, you know what? Yes, this is shameful. But nothing compared to the joy that's set before me. This is where it ties into that radical analogy of running. Nobody gets in a race to finish last. Nobody sets out to be terrible. The joy is finishing. And if you've ever run distance races, you know, man, I came in 32nd, which was better than the 64th the time before. And you just want to get better. And so you keep training. And you keep running. And you do your best. And you will still find joy. The classic example of this is the game of golf. There's not one good golfer in this room, including me. <laughs> but in my heyday, I used to be a pretty fair golfer. I can still play well occasionally. But I can tell you this, it suckers you in. Because the first time you make a par, next time I can make a birdie. You got to watch the Masters. That crazy, insane shot that went on the second hole of sudden death. Takes out a pitching wedge. Hits it 150 yards. My pitching wedge maybe goes 90 yards. That's like twice as far as I can hit mine. Plus, he hooked it 40 yards. 40 yards. That's just, human beings can't do that. God can't even hit that shot. But here's Bubba Watson. He's standing over the ball in pine straw. Whack! He ends up ten feet from the hole. How do you do that? Practice, 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 
more practice. You throw 400 balls into the bushes and you try and go hit them. That's how you do that. And what happens is the first time that you actually make that shot, I can do that for real. First time you hit the ball over 250 yards, I can really hit the ball. And you keep coming back. You may stink at scoring. You might still shoot 95 or something, which is actually pretty good for most people. But in the back of your mind, I can shoot 92. I can make maybe 80 sometime. It keeps you coming back. You see, it's personal too. And this is the awesome thing about this message. It doesn't mean that all of us have to do the same thing. doesn't mean that all of us have to be as good at someone else at everything. It simply means the race is set before you. Run it with endurance. Run it with perseverance. Get in the game. Participate. And seek to get better. Apply yourself. Let God work in your life. Because Jesus has gone before you. He's sitting right now at the right hand of God the Father interceding for you. He's already finished the race. He knows exactly what your race looks like. Isn't that awesome? We used to do what's called pre-running. We would go out and pre-run a race. We would literally go to the other school's course and we would run their course to find out what was out there. Your course has already been pre-run by Jesus. knows where every twist is, every turn is. He knows where every little detail of the course is. He knows how to get you through those things. And he wants to input that to you as a coach. Via the Holy Spirit, as God works in your life, and you step out in faith onto that course that's been set before you, and you run with perseverance and endurance because you want to finish and you want to do well, the Lord Jesus is right there with you. Crucifixion was horrible. The worst thing that mankind, I believe, has ever really dreamt up. I can't think of any other worse way for a human being to die than crucifixion. I really can't. But Jesus looked at that and said, because of Jeff, it brings me such joy to think that one day he's going to be walking with me in heaven. I'm going to do this. That's supposed to be the type of attitude that we take into the world. Verse 3, For consider him who endured such hostility, and I'm reading from the NIV, from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You see, when you think about Jesus, when you look unto Jesus, when you recognize what Jesus did, and you realize why he did it, it encourages you. You say, if he can do it, I can do it. Again, back to our analogy. You get out on a track sometime and you try and run an 80, which is a sprint race, by the way. 440 is once around, 80 is twice. And you set out to run that race, and you happen to say, be a sprinter, you're dead. Because you're going to burn up everything you got in about the first 220 yards. And then after that, you got zip gas. But if you go out and run with somebody who runs that distance, and they tell you how to pace yourself, they tell you where to let go and where to cruise, you cruise on the straights, you power through the corners, you learn all those things from somebody who runs that race, right? Same thing spiritually. Jesus has been there, done that, bought the t-shirt, got the hat, has the pen. He's in heaven. He's already there. So you don't need to be discouraged because he's already done it. He's waiting for you. You see, as we face hardship, we'll also face discouragement. As you face hardship, you will face discouragement. There are times when you just want to give up. I can tell you, you talk to Connie, get her alone privately and sometime and ask about me, and you're going to find out that your pastor faces discouragement at times. Your pastor in a heap sometimes. So discouraged. The enemy comes in as a flood. 
It's just like you know, he starts beating you up, and you go, yep, you're right, I'm worthless. I know none of you ever do that. But I do. All of a sudden, you're going, it's like, Lord, where did I go wrong? What did I do? And you start thinking through exactly the same things that Scripture records. And all of a sudden, you realize, he's already done it. He's already won. There's no reason for me to be discouraged. He's called me to this race. He hasn't called me to Chuck Smith's race. He hasn't called me to Brian Broderson's race. He's called me to Jeff's race. And Jeff's race looks different than their race. But he's already pre-run it. He's already done it. He's already in heaven. I just need to follow the leader. And then all of a sudden the discouragement goes away. You have to be careful because underneath all of this, I think there's a, there's a kind of hidden trap of the enemy, if you will. And it's something, again, that we can draw from the analogy of the race. It's being weary. It's overtraining sometimes. I know you guys never overthink things. I, I know that nobody in this room does that. I know that you never try so hard that you actually go the wrong direction. But I do. That's one of my weaknesses. I have a tendency to be so tenacious about most things that I very often just keep going when God's saying, Slow down, knucklehead. Stop. You're you're way ahead of me. You've run this race incorrectly. You sprinted when you should have jogged. And you get tired. And weariness takes a great toll on, on anybody who basically is a people person because eventually you run out of gas. You don't have anything. There's no kick. The finish line's coming up, and it's like, I'm just going to die right here. Jesus never in his humanness tried to do it all. He even had the disciples help him. It shows you how desperate he was. And I don't mean desperate because he was God. I mean, in a human sense, he's imparting to these knuckleheads, hey, you guys are going to be the light of the world. You kind of need to learn to do this on your own. And so the Lord allowed the disciples to take the ball and run with it occasionally, didn't he? And in fact, he actually suffered because of it at times. He he got blamed for their little faux pas. The things where they failed. He had to fix their messes occasionally. But he didn't try and do it all for him. He still let the disciples. Peter still got out of the boat. Amen? Jesus could have just made him float all the way to shore. He could have pulled in the net himself. You know, throw the, no, don't worry about throwing the net on the other side. Fish in the boat. He could have skipped the whole storm thing on the Sea of Galilee. He said, well, here's what was going to happen, and boom, right into their minds, they get it. He could have done all that, but he let them do it themselves. Don't try and do it all. Let God be God. That's the lesson. Jesus took breaks. Jesus often went alone to pray. Jesus went to the other side of the lake. He disappeared from at times and kind of reappeared. Jesus in his flesh showed us that there's a proper time for us to take a little bit of a break. Regather yourself. He sought his Father. We need to seek God. Sometimes I found out that when I'm going the hardest, I'm also the least effective. Because I've been going at it so hard, I step right over the very thing that God's trying to tell me. And thirdly, through it all, the Lord finished the race. He was faithful. We need to finish. just need to get out and finish. You don't have to come in first. You just need to finish. The goal for the Christian is to finish. Now, praise God, in kind of a very strange way, every last one of us finishes first. Because we all get heaven. And it's, it's kind of like if you get a gold medal, you get a gold medal. Okay? doesn't matter whether your gold medal was given to you 463rd or first. You still get a gold medal. In essence, because of what you receive from what the Lord has done for us by grace, you still finish first. When you get to heaven, you're going to be going, I'm a winner. Not, Harry beat me here and he's got four more crowns. I hate that. (laughs) 
His leg, his leg's already been raptured. It's called having one foot in heaven. And a, yeah, leg up. We need a drum roll. We're on fire tonight. And so verse 4 goes on to kind of begin to wrap these things up. For you've not resisted in a bloodshed striving against sin. It doesn't cost you your life to fight against sin. It costs Jesus his life to fight against sin. You will never have to fight that fight yourself. He's already fought that fight. Thank you, Jesus. You, you, You see, we just need to do our part. Jesus told us it was going to be a little rough. He said, hey, they persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. I mean, get over yourselves, basically, is what he was saying. It's going to happen. It's a foregone conclusion. Just as the Lord struggled against sinful people and this world's situation and the enemy, so we're going to have times when it's like that. And so he says to us, it really hasn't cost us all that much. We think at times it has. I know I do. There are times when I'm just like, you know, I get in my whining for Jesus mode. It's self-pity at times. I think everybody does that. And I'm sharing with you transparently because I think, I think it, it helps for us to be open and honest with each other. And when, we don't, when we won't admit that there's something going on in our lives, or we won't seek to have other people pray for us because we're afraid that somehow they'll... Man, they might think I'm not perfect. Well, if you don't think that already, I'm not perfect. There, it's on an audio recording. You can just get the, you can play it over and over. <laughs> Jeff's not perfect. Jeff's not perfect. Not perfect. Praise God, I don't have to be because He was. I strive to do my very best, and I never want to come short of the glory of God. But I'm not getting to heaven because I'm perfect. I'm getting to heaven because he was perfect. I, haven't, I have not resisted that, unto that bloodshed striving against sin. It hasn't cost me my life in the sense that my actual life was forfeited. Everything I've given up is, as Paul exactly said, I counted all as trash that I might gain the excellency of Christ Jesus. You see, getting to getting ready to run really leaves us in that place to where we need to start listening to what the coach has to say. Amen? Verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? And you can put that teammates, athletes, you could throw for the sake of analogy, as one of the team, as sons, as daughters of God, as God's kids, as part of the group of people that are in the race together, all running in your own lane, the one that God set before you. As that, have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. Uh, there is a healthy place on the sidelines for every coach to go, Gil, pick up your right foot. You're dragging your right foot. Extend, extend, extend. And after a while, I'm going like, to kill him. I'm just going to kill him. I'm going to come around. I'm going to cleat him right in the forehead. (laughs) You didn't know I was so mean, did you? No, but you think those things. And if you're honest, you think those things against the Lord sometimes too. I don't want to hear it, God. I am sick of hearing about how I am bitter. Because you are. I've got a problem with gossip because you do. Or I'm stuck in that sin rut because you keep doing it over and over again. And the coach is yelling from the sidelines and then he sends in his assistants, which is you guys, his Bible, his word. Yo, come here. What does that say? Thou shalt have no other gods before me, including myself. I don't want to hear that, coach. Don't be discouraged. He's trying to make you better. He wants you to run further, faster, and finish well. So he's going to pick on your form. He's going to pick on your style. He's going to look at the little subtleties, the things that you think you do well, and go, you can do that better. 
That's what a good coach does. If you want to run well, you better listen. Don't be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son he receives. That's where we kind of lose the coaching analogy. You really don't want to beat your players into submission. But at times, because we're knuckleheads from a biblical perspective, God's got to use some extraordinary measures. Amen? Has in my life. God's taken out the holy baseball bat and whacked me with it several times. Right between the eyes. You're dense. You're dumb. You're going the wrong way. You won't listen. You keep making the same wrong turn. Whack. Why? Tells you. Every son, the Lord chastens those whom he loves. He scourges the son he receives. In other words, you're actually one of his kids. He's going to at times have to do that, just like we do with our own children. I am the product of Dr. Spock's teachings of the 1950s and 60s, except my parents didn't listen. But you see, we've run into that generational thing to where we no longer correct kids. We just let them do whatever they want. After all, they're their own individual. No, they're demonically inspired hellions. There's, without some guidance, they have a tendency to go the wrong way, okay? That's called being a human being with a sin nature. That doesn't mean that every child is equally as, you know, unspiritual as the other, but the bottom line is, left to their own demise, which way do they go? Typically the wrong way. And so if you really love them, you make corrections. The good news is, you make those corrections as light as you possibly can. But if it warrants it, you're going to smack them between the eyes if you got to. I'll probably get arrested for child abuse for saying that, but the bottom line is you've got to take appropriate measures according to the actions. Amen? If you don't, I say to you, you don't love your kids. As I deal with kids on a daily basis, I can tell you there's a lot of parents who don't love their kids because they let them do whatever they please. And they show up at my doorstep as 13-year-olds that have already had an abortion. They show up at my doorstep already on crack at 12. They show up at my doorstep having watched more porn than you would ever imagine that anyone could watch at 10 years old. You see, that type of thing requires that God do some straightening out. And a good parent should. But God loves us so much, He's going to do what He's got to do to get our attention, to get us out of that situation. Don't despise that. It's for your good. Those things will destroy you. They'll kill you. And so God, because He loves you, if you won't listen to the kind rebuke, He gets out the holy baseball bat. And maybe you get slapped a little silly. But that's because He loves you. He loves me. You get off course... Count on God doing what God needs to do to get your attention. Verse 7, For if you endure the chastening, (laughs) that word that's translated chastening there actually means whipping. If If you endure the whooping, if you take it, God deals with you, I love this, as sons, as daughters, as his kids. In other words, what this passage effectively says, if God doesn't chasten you, you got a serious problem. If you're okay in sin, if you're okay weighted down, if you're okay running off course, if you're okay in the middle of nowhere running by yourself, if you're doing the wrong things and nobody's saying, hey, you're off course, or whack, I would say to you, you better check and see whether you're actually one of God's kids. You need to look for yourself. Because God loves you so much, He's going to do it. But He only does it for His kids. He's not going to whack somebody who doesn't know that that's His standard. That's the way it works. To him who knows it's sin, it's sin. That's what Scripture says. Plainly. So if you don't know it's sin, unbeliever doesn't know it's sin. But you as the body of Christ, we as children of God, we know it's sin. Expect to get whoopings. It's because God loves us. Not going to let you get away with it forever. 
It also means that he's very appropriate in his timing and in his measure. He doesn't just, you know, automatically smack you around. That wouldn't be a good parent, certainly not a good God. But he will take that measure if you leave that uh, in the mix. For what son is there that a father doesn't chasten? But if you were without chastening, of which we have all become partakers, in other words, I can tell you, talk to anyone that's walked with the Lord for a long time, and you're sure they're walking with the Lord, they will tell you, I have been to the woodshed. God's taken me downtown, and I have received the glory. Yeah. Anybody's walked with the Lord for two weeks has had God do something. It's just like, wow, probably should learn not to do that. kind of hurts. Would you all become partakers? Then you're illegitimate and not sons. Notice what it says. You need to be very afraid if you are repeatedly getting away with things that God says is sin. You need to be very afraid, very afraid, if you are repeatedly getting away with things that God says are clearly sin. And I'm not talking about marginal issues. I'm not talking about liberties. I'm not talking, well, I have a beer. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about repeated, pervasive, very clear sin. You need to be very careful because if God's not chastening you, there is a chance you're not actually one of his kids. It's designed to put the fear of God in this, quite frankly. You see, when I know what God wants, I'm expected to do it. And if there's no chastening, you might want to look around and see who your God is. God promises to discipline us as his children. And we have to endure it. I'd rather be disciplined by God than forsaken by God. How's that? I'd rather be disciplined than forsaken. I'd rather get a whooping from a father who loves me than be let go by one who doesn't. I'd rather not get my own way if it leads to my destruction. I'd rather have somebody step in the way and go, over my dead body are you doing that? That's why Proverbs 13.24 says, Those who spare the rod hate their children. Those who love them diligently discipline them. The reason being is it shows that you actually care. Because you know what the easier thing is to do? Let them do whatever they want. And then when they end up a ward of the court, when they end up in prison, when they end up married to somebody that God had no intentions of them marrying, when they end up in financial trouble because their life has been destroyed, because they've had children out of wedlock and they don't have a clue whether they actually ever loved that person or not, if you just let them do whatever they want, you do not love them. You love yourself. You're just being selfish. I've had some very tough conversations with parents when they've come up to pick up their kids at the camp. And it usually results in me saying something like, and I do it with as much love as I possibly can, how can you possibly say you love your child and you let them do this? Don't you know you're destroying them? That doesn't tell them you love them. Stopping them from doing this. Putting your own life on the line. Getting out of your own little bubble and saying, Over my dead body are you going to be able to do that? Tells them you love them. Make them fight to do what it is that's wrong. Don't make it easy. And God does the same thing for us. Verse 9, and furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid respect to them. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? Basically what it's saying is the same thing that we would expect in our own families here on this earth is true of God. We need to respect him. He knows better. My sons know that there's a few things I know that they don't know. There's a bunch of things their mom knows that they don't know. And there are times when they don't like the fact that we know it. Amen? They usually tell us, I wish you wouldn't say that. But I tell them anyway. Because I've already been down that road. I know where it goes. I know where it leads. 
And God knows where every road goes and where every door opens to. He knows what's behind door number one and door number seven billion eight hundred and fourteen. He knows. And he's going to tell you, don't go through that door. Don't do it. I need to listen. What it's saying is be in subjection. Listen to what he has to say. Tell you the short path to the glory of God. Do what God says. There's no substitute. You can argue with him all day long. As your children get older, especially in their late teens and 20s, you find out they're, they're becoming a peer, they're, they're an adult, and they have a lot of their own opinions and those kind of things. It's actually wonderful. You sit around and you talk on a much deeper level. But there are times when at the end of it you just have to go, you're just wrong. You were completely wrong. This, this isn't about you having an opinion. You are W-R-O-N-G, wrong. Not because I'm better. You're just wrong. You see, at that point in time, they need to listen. Conversation's over. I don't tell God, well, I don't like what your word says. You know, your Bible is awfully narrow. I'm not very happy that it says all these things in here. Because I can't do the things I want to do. And I really like sinning. Matter of fact, I enjoy my sin very much. Thank you. Just get out of my life. I don't want you to talk to me anymore. I don't want you to correct me anymore. I don't want to hear about it anymore. Any of your children ever told you that? I don't want to hear about it. But we can't find the dog. You have to clean the room. Release him. Let him go. You, you, you see, you got to listen. Eventually, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah you know, they would have starved to death in there. Except for the crumbs on the floor. A couple of weeks worth there. You, you see, you got to listen. For indeed, for a few days, chastened us as seemed best to them. Our parents do that. God's going to do that. But a chastening doesn't last forever. And it's not the way anybody wants their children's relationship to be with them. It's not like, man, I just hope I get to chasten my kids today. When I get home, I hope they've done something wrong so I can smack the tar out of them. I was just saying to myself, boy, I hope they broke something so I can charge them extra and get their allowance money back. No parent thinks that way. No parent thinks that way. For indeed, for a few days they chastened us to seem best to them. Sometimes you just have to do it. It's required. But he, for our prophet, noticed this, that we might be partakers of his holiness. There's a purpose behind it. It's not because it brings him any joy. God doesn't like spanking us. He doesn't like chasing us. He wants us to win. And he knows the only way for us to win is for us to change our course of action. For us to be obedient, to listen, to take the coaching as we should. To get in our lane, run the race. To practice hard. To continue to run. To deal with the pain when it comes. It's going to make you stronger. It's going to make you better. For another time, we could do a whole study on the theology of trials in the, in, found in the New Testament. I mean, there, there is a place for that type of pain in our lives. And it actually is good. Don't despise it. And verse 11 says, For now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. You know, when you're out there and you're running that 50th set of 50-meter, 50 50-yard 50 sprints, and you are going to die. Your insides are about to become your outsides. And you are going to die. You feel like if you run one more time, you're going to die. Just croak right there on the infield. Flop on the grass, and it's over. It's not pleasant. But it's painful. Nevertheless, afterwards... It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. All of a sudden, you can run further. All of a sudden, you can run longer. 
All of a sudden you can run harder. All of a sudden you can enter more races. All of a sudden you're more useful to the team. All of a sudden you get the picture. And the picture is God knows exactly what he's doing with us. He'll never chasten us more than is needed, but he will always chasten us as much as is needed. He will never unduly pressure you, but to make you better, me better. He won't allow things into your life that won't produce something that works as a fruit of righteousness. God doesn't do that. He's not a torture fiend. He doesn't put you out on the track and make you run around and around and around and around. And then, oh, by the way, you're off the team. That would be salvation by works. Amen. But by grace, you're still on the team. My senior year, we had a, we had a disabled young man that was on our track team. And we tried everything. He was pretty strong, so we had him shot-putting for a while until he nearly killed a coach. We finally figured out there just wasn't a whole lot that he could do. But you know what? He was such a joy to be around and such an encouragement to everybody else. We kept him on the team, and he lettered. He never ran in anything. But he was there. He played his part. His part was to smile and to make everybody else feel like they could win. And it was awesome. I remember our our final track meet of my senior year. We put that young man up on our shoulders and marched him around the track in front of the entire stadium. That's what God's going to do with you just because you're finished. He loves you that much. A peaceable fruit of righteousness. The harvest of righteousness is another way to look at it. So we run that race, we just reap that harvest of the things that God wants to do in our lives. You go home with a whole slug of metals. What an awesome feeling that is. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, Lord, I want to thank you for the times that You've you've chastened me, Lord. You've taken me to the woodshed, Lord. Thank you for dusting me off and putting me back in the race so many times. Lord, thanks for correcting my attitude and, Lord, even my faults and weaknesses. Thank you that you keep inputting into our lives until you take us home. That the race isn't over until the race is over. And so there's a fresh start for tomorrow. I pray for anybody that's here tonight that, Maybe they've been discouraged and just beat down. God, would you speak your love into their lives right now? Help them to be obedient to your voice and receive those fruits of righteousness as they do so. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. We bless you. Thanks for letting us be part of your team. We pray these things in the precious name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.